Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. If we weren't ready for the COVID pandemic, will we be able to prevent larger catastrophes? Can we handle a deadlier man-made pandemic? Can we deflect against asteroid strikes? Are we doing enough to mitigate climate change? My guest today is Toby Ord, and he argued that safeguarding humanity's future from these existential risks is the defining challenge of our time. Toby is a senior research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. He is also the author of The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity, released earlier this year. Toby, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Astronomers estimate there are something like 6 billion Earth-like planets in the Milky Way galaxy, but we've never detected any sign of life beyond Earth, nor do we have any evidence that any aliens have visited Earth. But there's this theory of the Great Filter, the idea that at least one of the steps in humanity evolving, advancing, and colonizing space must be really unlikely. Now, it's unclear if humanity has already passed through this filter or not, if it exists, and your book, at least as I see it, is about the possibility that we haven't passed through that filter yet. That there are all these ways that our civilization could still collapse or go extinct. So, what's going to get us and when's it going to get us? Well, I, I mean, I hope that, uh, that nothing gets us. Uh, ultimately, uh, I, I, my, like my best guess is that there's a, about a 50-50 chance that we just make it through, uh, through the long term. And we last, you know, as, as long as we could last uh, within whatever constraint that is, uh, be that until uh, the Earth is no longer habitable or until, uh, you know, th this entire part of our galaxy is, you know, or, or beyond is no longer habitable. Uh, so, so I hope that we will make it a very long time. Uh, but I am very interested in, in what are the challenges uh, that could stop us uh, before we get there. And, and we've faced uh, existential risks. So, so risks that could cause the extinction of humanity or otherwise destroy our long-term potential, such as an unrecoverable collapse of civilization. Uh, we've, we've faced them uh, for a long time. Uh, so Homo sapiens is about 200,000 years old, uh, 2,000 centuries. Uh, during which we've been subjected to all of these risks from asteroids and comets and supernovae explosions and things like that. Uh, and we know that, therefore, that, that those natural risks must be fairly low per century, or we couldn't have got through 2,000 centuries. And you can make that precise. Uh, but I'm particularly worried about humanity's escalating power, um, kind of, you know, this exponential increases in our power, uh, which I think, you know, with the development of nuclear weapons in the 20th century, first reach this point where we could threaten our own survival and where the, the chance, you know, that we make it through a century, uh, you know, that the natural risk each century has to be lower than I think something like one in 2000. Uh, but the, the man-made risk, I think, could well be substantially higher than that. And I think it is. So it's these anthropogenic so, risks I'm most worried about. So, um, so when you, when you look at both those kinds, sort of the natural risks, um, you know, asteroid hitting the earth or sort of the risks that we're creating, whether it's climate change or, you know, runaway artificial intelligence. And you mentioned a variety of these risks. The, when you put those together, the odds of something terrible happening over the next hundred years is what? 
Yeah, I, th- I think about one in six. Um, that seems and high. I, it, yeah, seems I think like it's a very it, high number to me. I, I think so. I mean, that, that's why I wanted to give a number in the book. Um, a lot of people just, you know, would say, ah, you can't really put a precise number on it, so don't put a number at all. Uh, but I think that if I merely said there is a grave risk, or the risk is all too great, or something like that. If people wouldn't know whether I was talking about something like one in a thousand, which you know is still a one in a thousand chance of losing everything that humanity has ever worked towards over two thousand centuries, is still a grave risk. Um, or whether I'm talking about ninety percent or something. So I try to be a bit more clear about that. Uh, but I don't want to risk over precision. You know, I say one in six, but if someone said one in sixty or one in two, I would think that they're they're talking the same language as me and that, that we're in the same ballpark. And 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 it's really those sort of man-made risk, uh, which th- those didn't you know those didn't exist before. In the past, you really mm-hmm. only had to worry about uh, the natural risk, whether it's again whether it's asteroids or super volcanoes or you know something like that. But certainly since you know nineteen, would you say since not you know since nineteen forty-five, it's that's when the man-made risks began, and those are the ones which have become sort of ever more dangerous. That's right. With some kind of uh, artificial precision, I date this this current period of heightened risk, uh, which I call the precipice, uh, hence the name of the book, uh, to uh, to the exact moment of the Trinity test of the atomic bomb. Is th- is that? But th- uh, well, I I know it isn't, so I won't pretend. I, but that but that's not the one that that's the one which has sort of been you know looming over humanity, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for over a half century as. You know, that that that's how humanity could go extinct. That's how we could lose it all. We cannot recover it. But that's not the one that scares you the most. That's right. Uh, I, I think that that uh, over time, uh, people did really work out that they should be scared. even though even though in the book you do highlight some some pretty scary close calls involving nuclear weapons. Yeah, that's that's right. I, I, things have got a lot closer than than many people recognize uh, to triggering an all-out nuclear war. Uh, although there still is a, a serious question about, you know, an all-out nuclear war shouldn't be equated with the end of humanity. I, I think that there's there's something like a 99% chance that in some form or another we could pull through. Um, uh, so, and we really don't know that much about exactly how bad nuclear winter would be. Uh, it seems serious enough that the the milder scenarios still may involve billions of people dying. So, uh, it's certainly. Uh, nothing to take lightly, uh, but the, but the the uh, the risk of human extinction from it, I think, is real. Um, or un, you know, we can't yet eliminate it. It seems very plausible, uh, but it's it's nothing like a, a sure thing. Uh, and then I think that when it comes to climate change, uh, it's often talked about as if it's um, you know almost surely an existential risk. Um, uh, but it it's something where again, while it could be extremely serious damages. Uh, it is difficult to actually come up with scenarios that scientists think are plausible uh, that would cause uh, the unrecoverable collapse of civilization or the extinction of humanity, dire though some of the outcomes could be. Uh, so I think that that, again, is is an existential risk, or at least it could be, uh, that, that I'm worried about, but not the most worried. Uh, I'm ultimately most worried about uh, engineered pandemics. Uh, and about unaligned artificial intelligence. Uh, two things that aren't going to kill us this year or next year, uh, but over the next few decades, uh, they could well come online as, as serious possibilities. All right, so let's maybe take a minute or two address address each of those uh, and uh, you know sort of explain why you think those those are the ones which really scare you and should scare us. 
Yeah, so if you look at the the track record of uh, of major catastrophes that have befallen humanity, uh, the uh, pandemics are are really right up there. Uh, the The two biggest events in terms of the the proportion of the world's population who were killed um, uh, would appear to be uh, the Black Death, um, where about uh, a quarter to a half of all people in Europe were killed. Um, so this is this is far beyond uh, the current pandemic, um, you know, maybe a hundred times worse. Uh, and it was around about one in 10 people in the entire world were killed uh, in that pandemic. And uh, there could be a similar uh, proportion of the world's population that were killed in uh, the, the so-called Columbian exchange uh, when uh, the meetings of people from the Americas and, uh, and the old world uh, exchange diseases uh, and the uh, the people in the Americas got by far the worst end of that. And that could be as many as a tenth of the people in the world being killed. Uh, but even then, the that shows how, how serious natural pandemics can be. Um, but it doesn't, it, it is still difficult for the natural ones uh, to do us in, as partly seen by the fact that we have survived 2,000 centuries. Uh, and in fact, most species uh, survive um, for something like a million years, uh, despite the risk of being wiped out by pandemics. Right. Uh, so it's, but when we look at the, the rate of improvement in biotechnologies uh, and the things that we're now able to do, uh, and when we look at the rate of democratization of biotechnology, uh, so the gap in time between the world's best scientists hitting you know, and developing a major new technique, uh, such as, uh, such as uh, gene drives uh, or CRISPR, and then that the time lapse between that and it being used by students to win science competitions, uh, undergraduate students, uh, is about two years. Um, so from the point where only one person can do it to the point where there are tens of thousands of people in the world who could be able to do it, it's just a couple of years. And then if you think, well, what about a decade or two later? You know, when will it be before a kind of reasonably bright high school student could do this thing? Uh, you know, it may not be that long. And then the the proportion of, you know, the, the number of people who could do it is so large that there's a reasonable chance it could include someone with very bad motivations. And and what are the, what are sort of the examples in the past uh, which suggest to you, you know, that, 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 that this could happen? Because we have, we haven't, you know, we, obviously there have been people have speculated about the current pandemic that it was some sort of engineered uh, uh, weapon. But in the past, there have been there have been uh, there have been accidents where things have gotten out. Yeah, so so there've been there have been a lot of uh, lab escapes um, of of extremely serious pathogens. Um, the the last case of smallpox in the world, um, and smallpox is something that killed uh, hundreds of millions of people uh, in the twentieth century, um, and the it got out of a lab in the UK. Uh, the the last foot and mouth um, you know epidemic, or sorry, you know among uh, sheep and cattle. Uh, in the UK, the, the most recent one of those was a lab escape from a UK lab. Uh, I think that the the most recent case of SARS was a lab escape from a Beijing lab, um, that and that that's confirmed. Uh, it you know this it does happen surprisingly often, um, and uh, the Soviets had a number of uh, you know major errors with their uh, their they had a biological weapons uh, program. Uh, they accidentally sprayed anthrax over a major city. Uh, and they uh, they accidentally released uh, smallpox. Um, they, they were trying kind of smallpox bombs in a in a lake uh, and accidentally infected a ship, which then took it back to shore. And they had to uh, to stamp out this outbreak uh, after smallpox had been uh, eliminated in their country. 
so this kind of thing can can definitely happen. Uh, and we also um, biological weapons programs by state actors is another thing that I'm concerned about. Uh, there could be some reasons for them to have extremely damaging weapons, even if they don't have immunity, uh, such as as a um, as a uh, like equivalent to a nuclear deterrent uh, in terms of a mutually assured destruction policy. Uh, so, and maybe states that can't afford nuclear weapons uh, would be able to uh, to do mutually assured destruction that way. Well, based based on what we've seen in the past and the uh, evolution and the democratization of this technology, uh, what, what are what are the uh, what are the odds of this? What odds did you attach to a, 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 an engineered uh, pandemic? Yeah, I. I over it seems the, like they should be a hundred percent because if, if it's out there and people can do it, whether it's a, whether it's a, uh, a, a, you know, a bright uh, high school student who makes a terrible mistake or whether it's someone who's intentionally trying to do it, it seems like the odds for this should be awfully, awfully high. Yeah, I should add we've also seen groups like uh, Aum Shinrikyo uh, in uh, Japan uh, that did sure. the sarin gas attacks, and they had scientists on their team, and they were uh, at least some of their objectives were to uh, destroy all of humanity. Uh, so if they could have had access to technologies that would do that, it looks like they they quite likely would have tried to do it. And this um, is the twelve so, monkey. This is the twelve monkey scenario where you get uh, where you get a a a, a scientist, and and it said maybe it doesn't really require a bright scientist at some point. Uh, a scientist with a who with a vision, <laughs> who thinks humanity is a problem and engineers something. It just it doesn't yeah. seem. It, it seems so. Again, it seems like the odds of something like this happening should be pretty high. So, so I think over the next century, you know, the chance that people try stuff like this, I think, you know, is is greater than a half. Um, uh, but the chance that it actually works will be notably lower, particularly if there are any kind of warning shots, any attempts that people have to do something like this. Uh, suppose someone tries something and it kills a million people. Uh, then, you know, the, the effort on defensive technologies or surveillance of people who have the skills to be able to do things like this or surveillance of the facilities in which they could do it and so on uh, might be very extreme uh, So it, as a response. Uh, so it, it might, you know, that might offer us some kind of protection. Uh, ultimately, my, my best guess is about one in 30 chance over the next century that, that a successful attempt at this uh, destroys humanity. I want to return to this topic because it's an obvious one to discuss during the current pandemic. But now let's turn to concerns about artificial intelligence, a very popular theme in films. And certainly some AI experts also seem concerned about it. And you're saying they're right to be concerned. Yeah, there's actually a lot of uh, leading AI experts who are concerned about it. Um, uh, and uh, I think that uh, ultimately, the, if, you, if you zoom out a bit, and you and I try to do that in the book and really kind of tell the story of humanity and where we've come from and where we might be headed. Uh, and if you look at where we came from and why it is that humanity is the unique species on the planet that's in control of its destiny, uh, that has this kind of extreme potential to fashion the future into a into potentially an amazingly wonderful way. Uh, the reason that, that it's us who have that potential and that other species like uh, chimps or, or blackbirds, you know, that, that they don't, uh, that what happens to them is fundamentally in our control. Uh, why is it that it's all in our control and we're not in someone else's control? It's, it's ultimately because uh, we are the most cognitively capable species on the planet. Something like intelligence, but perhaps more broad to include ability to cooperate and work together. 
Uh, and if we're trying to create more cognitively advanced systems uh, and leading AI scientists uh, think that uh, they've been surveyed and they think that there's a more than 50% chance that, uh, that you know, the, the typical researcher thinks there's a more than 50% chance that over the next century, uh, we will develop systems that exceed the abilities of humans across all domains. Uh, if we do create the, such systems, uh, why would we remain in control? Or would we just be then at their mercy? How would we survive that transition fundamentally? And, and I think that we probably will survive such a transition. Uh, but I think there's a, you know, a really non-negligible chance that we don't. Uh, and the people who, the, the ways of surviving it, such as making sure that these systems are within our control, even though they're more powerful than us, or making sure that these systems are motivated to produce the kind of utopia you know, that we would dream of, is extremely difficult to do. And it's the people who are trying to work out how to solve those problems who are the leading voices of concern uh, about this. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, of course, there are going to be people, uh, whether it's AI or um, it's CRISPR, who are going to say, these numbers, you know, whether they're whether they're just, you know, back of the envelope numbers mm -hmm. or what are just all just too high. Let's stop it. Let's just put a moratorium. Let's ban these technologies to, until until the point until our, our our ethics and our wisdom becomes greater. And that may never happen. So until that happens, we just need to stop. Yeah, I think I think fundament if, if there was a fundamental kind of renunciation of technological progress, uh, my guess is that 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 itself would destroy our future potential, um, that we would we would achieve only a tiny fraction of what we could have done uh, if we were to do that. Uh, but if a more kind of careful version of going slow on the very most risky areas until we are, have shown ourselves, for example, maybe we've gone an entire century without a world war as a kind of like, then we can unlock this technology and just and we're mature enough to actually start you know pushing on with it. That wouldn't seem like an unreasonable thing. That, that could be a good approach for a, a more sane and coordinated world. Uh, in, in our less sane and less coordinated world, um, I'm not sure that having the few people who care about these risks pushing for going slow uh, would achieve very much uh, because you really do need you know, a lot of different groups to be going slow all at the same time. Otherwise, the more responsible groups are effectively abdicating the control of the technology to the less responsible ones. What lessons do you draw from the COVID pandemic, both regarding our ability to coordinate solutions on a global level and our ability to anticipate crises. It really seems like we are woefully unprepared for this, even though there have been plenty of less serious pandemics over the past 20 years that should have served as warnings. For me, our handling of this pandemic makes me very pessimistic about doing anything for these other problems, particularly ones which we have not yet experienced. Yeah, I think that's, that's quite fair. Um, I, I think that the uh, the preparations were shown to indeed be woefully inadequate. Uh, there's a lot of conversation as if this was an unprecedented event, uh, whereas uh, in fact it's entirely precedented. Um, you know, it's it's been about a hundred years uh, since you know the last pandemic of this scale. That's not very long. Uh, a once in a hundred year event means you know there's about a one in ten chance of it happening in every ten year kind of time planning horizon, which is which is pretty huge when it comes to a big risk. Uh, so, I. Uh, it was just kind of kicked down the road by lots of administrations. And, and once it fell outside the, the length of most people's lifespans, uh, then, you know, there, there wasn't that kind of cultural memory of the last time. Uh, so it's extremely difficult, uh, you know, to, to get uh, 
governments and other institutions to care about things that people don't vividly remember having happened. Uh, so at least one piece of good news about that uh, is that at least it is hopefully providing some kind of you know inoculation for humanity uh, to uh, prepare us, you know, to remind us that we're still vulnerable for all of our improvements uh, that we've made over this time. Uh, hopefully, we learn the more general lesson, not just that prepare for, you know, respiratory pandemics or prepare prepare for pandemics, um, but prepare for catastrophic risks, uh, being the real lesson. But you know, the track record of learning the appropriately broad lesson is is not great. Uh, and we're, and you're right that when it comes to these things that are completely um, unprecedented. And to some extent, all existential risk is by definition unprecedented. Uh, but that obviously doesn't mean that you're invulnerable to it. You know, uh, it's uh, it's extremely difficult challenge. Even though we're soaked in a culture which has focused on catastrophe, whether it's AI, nuclear war, pandemics, or zombie apocalypse, we still have trouble getting people to prevent or prepare for these crises. What is it about humanity that makes us unlikely? to look ahead and prepare for these risks? Is there some psychological shortcoming or bias we're fighting against? Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, there's a couple of these. Uh, so uh, one of them is, uh, is scope neglect, uh, which is uh, the inability for people to take seriously uh, if something could affect, say, a thousand times as many people or a million times as many people, uh, that it's a thousand or a million times worse, um, and to take appropriate measures. Uh, that's a serious problem. There's also uh, probability neglect. Um, when when probabilities are very small, uh, they often well either get overemphasized incorrectly or just rounded off to zero, um, uh, as opposed to trying to actually multiply them out by the very large number of people who'd be affected and see what the expected value is. Uh, and there's there's also uh, a problem where uh, if something isn't very vivid to us, uh, that we have a lot of trouble responding to it. Uh, so that means that if something's happened very recently, you know, we, we can see it uh, and feel it and we make appropriate responses. But if it's just someone telling us that it's important and writing some numbers and the numbers are big enough that we should be paying attention, but they're just kind of marks on a piece of paper, uh, we have trouble acting. And I think that's the one that, that really got us uh, when it comes to COVID. Whereas I was a bit surprised because I, th I would have thought that the epistemic problems, like the challenges for scientists who really care about these risks in working out how on earth to even put probabilities on them, would be one of the biggest challenges. But in the case of uh, of COVID, you know, we actually had pretty good probability estimates, and you know, they were basically ignored. Uh, and then part of that was due to these psychological problems, and part of it was to do with incentive problems, uh, market failures, uh, and you know, political incentives. What about the risk of a world in chain scenario? where there's some totalitarian takeover of the world forever stunting humanity's progress. Look at China. 20 years ago, we thought technology and the internet would make it freer. But now they're putting these sophisticated surveillance technologies together and creating a surveillance state. So to me, the scenario of an oppressive state aided by powerful technology does not seem like a crazy one at all. Yeah, I, I don't think it is, um, especially looking further into the future as these technologies get more advanced. Uh, in some ways, it's one of the earlier scenarios to be contemplated. Uh, by, George, by George, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. Um, so Orwell was well, was pr pretty clearly contemplating. It. Had much had a much better surveillance system back then. You know, you know yeah, look yeah, what they so, could have done. So if you think of uh, like the Stasi uh, as an as a good real world example, uh, it's not clear that they could have quite scaled up what they had because they needed humans to spy on other humans and. 
you kind of need some trusted humans to start that off. Um, but with uh, with AI techniques uh, and uh, and digital surveillance, it may be possible to to build such a kind of surveillance infrastructure uh, that we kind of get trapped and uh, uh, and a dictator uh, could could contain you know maintain control indefinitely long or through their their dynasty. Um, the the kind of the way to think about that is is that we may not yet have the technologies to do this, but it looks like the kinds of technologies we're developing make that easier and easier. And it seems plausible that at some time in the next hundred years that that may become possible. And you don't need to think of it as it being locked in for a million years or something. Um, it's just enough that it gets locked in, say, for 100 years, during which even more advanced technologies are developed in order to lock it in for a thousand years, you know, during which more advanced things are developed and so on. Um, and yeah, it, it does concern me. So how do we avoid these catastrophes? How we've reacted to the pandemic and climate change does not make me hopeful. So what do you see in the world today that makes you confident we can avoid or mitigate these risks? Well, look, I, I'm not confident that we can do it, is, is one thing to say. Uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, I say that about a one in six chance that that humanity's long-term potential is is lost during this century. Um, and that's my best guess, taking into account, you know, our efforts to to deal with it. I think that a, a kind of worst attempt, like a kind of business or a business as usual, if we didn't really make any strong attempts, I would say it's more like one in three chance. Um, and if we if we really got our act together, I'd say like a one in a hundred chance. Um, I think that, that, uh, you know, given the kind of efforts that we can rise to these challenges, you know, and, and work on it, maybe we like halve the risk that we would otherwise be facing. Um, so I do think that part of the, the, my optimism that we survived the century is just because maybe the risks don't really eventuate this century rather than we do a great job of it. Uh, but I think that there's a whole lot of different levels in which we could act. We should be thinking about institutional change, uh, both in terms of incremental change, uh, such as developing a new, uh, you know, body within the UN uh, that is focused on uh, safeguarding humanity from existential risk, coordinating action between countries uh, and scientists, and so on. That's uh, you know maybe an IPCC for existential risk or something like that. That'd be an incremental change, but we should also be open to much more radical changes. Uh, so it was, you know, it was only in, at the end of the Second World War, less than 100 years ago, that most of our kind of global international institutions were created. Uh, maybe in the next 100 years, uh, there'll be another juncture like that. And we should, you know, we should focus on making sure that the, the institutions that respond to the next big warning shot, um, you know, are, you know, have major changes to help protect uh, the future. Uh, and then there's also questions about what can individuals do. Uh, so I think that people who are experts in science, uh, perhaps in some of these dangerous technologies, uh, they can work with professional bodies for those technologies to help uh, do more um, responsible research. Uh, and also some people who are good at science and technology should go into government and take up the other sides of these things. They often bemoan the fact that people in government don't really understand the science and technology, but that's because the people who do understand it tend not to go into government. Uh, so they need to kind of actually, you know, I think, uh, cross over and, and do some work from the other side too. What shouldn't we do? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you could look at some of the things with climate change and work out a bit about what one shouldn't do um, and and more generally. Uh, I think people concerned about this, you know, that they, they shouldn't just be monotonous about it and just nag everyone about it. Uh, I think that, you know, you've got to be careful on that. I think that uh, uh, there have been suggestions that the, the solution is world government. 
this is, a, this is not fitting in with a climate change analogy here, but uh, Einstein and others suggested this is a way out of the nuclear um, impasse. Uh, but that also would produce its own um, existential risks. It would increase the, the chance that if that world government went bad in a totalitarian direction, uh, that, that no we get trapped. Exactly. So it's not clear, like, I think that you could, you know, increasing international cooperation or coordination uh, could well be good. But there's a perhaps a limit to how far you want to increase it, um, and then it starts to become bad. I, I don't I don't know where the line is there, um, and you know also uh, uh, I think people who really care about this uh, should shouldn't um, uh, do you know Ill, any kind of illegal or illegitimate actions. You know it, it, the kind of thing that you know again if you if you become an extremist about something uh, in general that's going to turn everyone off and just set your cause back uh, as well as. Uh, just arguably being a, a you know, terribly wrong thing to do in the first place. Uh, so there are, there are a few examples of, of what not to do. To wrap up, sometimes I wonder if people don't focus on these risks because they just don't see what we have to lose otherwise. You know, there's so much negativity in popular media about the future, so we just don't have an optimistic image of the future that makes them think we have a chance for something pretty spectacular. So what is that great image of the future that's at risk? which should motivate us, hopefully, to overcome these risks. Yeah, well, I mean, I think actually you can come at this from a couple of different ways, and I try to do so in the book, that one is based on the future. Um, and I think that if you if you look at the, the, uh, the past uh, and you see this accumulation of innovations over the 100 billion humans uh, that have come before us and everything that they've built up around us, uh, it's no surprise that our lives are of higher quality uh, than lives in the past uh, because we have 100 billion people who work together to build this for us. Uh, and if you look in kind of more detail at the statistics of, you know, like lifespans have more than doubled uh, over the last 200 years. The countries with the lowest lifespan now is higher than the country with the highest lifespan was 200 years ago. Um, so we've had and massive improvements in, in prosperity as well. Uh, and in things like literacy, you know, a lot of areas that really matter. Um, and I think that, that, you really, and if you look at the history of pessimism on this, at people kind of this kind of continuous progress at at some kind of scale, if you zoom out enough, you know, let's say every fifty years getting substantially better than fifty years before, even though there could well be serious downturns for for particular areas, uh, it's it's very hard to understand why kind of seeing all of this improvement behind, you'd you'd predict that we're at the peak now. Um, and it's going to get worse. So that's one reason, just to kind of see this kind of continuing quest uh, for a more just and uh, and prosperous and free society than the successes that have been had and assume that there will be some continued successes. Uh, but also you could you could look back and, and ask when you say, what have we got to lose? As well as losing the future, we would lose everything from the past. Uh, we would be the, the first generation uh, out of, out of uh, thousands, uh, 10,000 generations the first to kind of break this chain. And if you think about what's bad, if a, if a culture is destroyed, um, everything about that would be even worse in this case. It would be the, the final ruin of every every language and culture and tradition, you know, every, every temple and cathedral, all destroyed forever. Um, and the, the ultimately the, the force in the universe uh, that was pushing towards what is good or just uh, in terms of moral action and, and the fact that humans, unlike, say, uh, chimpanzees or, or birds or, or what have you, 
can actually see that something on because it would be better for others um, or because it would be just that's a reason to do it and to push in that direction that would be gone um, as well as you know love and and appreciation of beauty and all of these things would be you know forever stripped from the world so I think we've got a, a lot to lose uh, and I can understand why people in a moment of despair kind of throw up their hands and say you know say these kinds of things but i think if they if they really reflect on it uh you know we'd have we have everything to lose my guest today has been toby ord toby thanks for coming on the podcast thank you 